I don't know if Jim Brooks did this or not. <laughs> did you do that, Jim? Oh, there's just an attempt to, you know, kind of humiliate, intimidate me, I guess. Um, well, I'll tell you what, let's pray, and then, then we'll um, introduce what we're going to do here for the next couple of weeks. Father in heaven, thank you for grace and mercy Thank you for the security that we have knowing you are God, you change not, and you are of infinite power, knowledge, and goodness. And we're grateful for the privilege to be here this evening. I pray that the study we <clears throat> do tonight and the next uh, weeks would be profitable. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Now, I don't want to... I hope, hang on everybody for a couple of weeks so that, uh, don't get too bored, I hope. Um, we looked at, okay, we looked at Islam. Then last week, um, we looked at Hinduism and Buddhism as briefly and as quickly as we possibly could. Um, it's the most, you know, just confused mess I've ever seen. Um, but at any rate, now we're moving into chronologically, um, maybe we would say, chronologically along with biblical calendar, we would do Egyptology, and then we would move to Greek <coughs> religion and Roman, okay? Without going into all the long story, um, I, I won't be here the 11th. Okay, that's two weeks from tonight. So um, in thinking about somebody to take that class, uh, I had talked to Corey Hunter. I don't know, a number of you know Corey. Um, and he's, he has a new book written by um, the past president of Wesley Biblical Seminary where he got his MDiv, same time my son got his MDiv. And there's a, on Egyptology. Um, and so I thought, okay, I will work on Greek, Roman, and then the Wednesday I'm gone, he'll do Egyptology, even though it's not in chronolo chronological order. Well, um, Corey, Corey's a pharmacist up at Smith's, okay? Um, now I've told him, I'm saying nothing behind his back, I've told him, knowing him for a lot of years, especially when he was in you know, high school and junior high, there's no way in the world I would let him fill a prescription for me. Um, because who knows what, <laughs> you know, what he might <laughs> do. Anyway, but they've lost a pharmacist and so he's got to work nine million hours, so he's unavailable. Um, but I'm gonna put a real plug in for you here. <clears throat> Tom Mills um, is gonna cover that um, on the 11th of October. He'll do an excellent job, and so I feel relieved that, I, I didn't know what I was gonna do, not that any of you are you know, too dumb to teach that, but there's a whole bunch of research you have to do, if you're not really familiar with it, to dig up all that stuff. So at any rate, um, that's why we're a little bit out of, chronological order 
and uh, but it'll be okay. So, um, one of the things about the Greek Greek religion, if we want to call it, and Roman specifically, um, this would apply also to Egypt, but they are religions, gods, and systems of belief that were directly encountered in Scripture and the, the people in Scripture. Of course, we know uh, ancient Israel and Egypt and so forth. Um, and then the, the Greek um, was intermediate prior to Roman, but there was heavy, heavy Greek, uh, not only um, religious influence, but cultural, philosophical, uh, linguistic, um, New Testament written in Greek. Um, so there was heavy um, interaction between Jewish and then Christian and Greek and specifically um, Christian and Roman. Okay? Um, and some of the philosophies, some of the gods that are, that are worshipped in those religions were, again, encountered by the apostles, by Paul especially. Um, and so <clears throat> those then become um, very relevant to the New Testament and to the, the kinds of things that the early church uh, encountered, had to counteract had received pushback from, and those ideas, the beliefs, Greek and Roman religions, were, I mean, they were marinated in it. And so, honestly, that God ever got a foothold in that world, is only, only God could have done it. It's supernatural. Um, Th those those religions are such a mess, but um, let me try to give you at least some really ballpark ideas of dates that we're talking about here. This even we can look at from the book of Daniel and the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. Remember the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had that he forgot, <laughs> and then he told he told Daniel, uh, you know. I want you to tell me what the dream was and interpret the dream. Well, all the wise men of um, Babylon said, well, you've got to tell us the dream. I mean, how in the world? And so being a reasonable, sane, level-headed person, Nebuchadnezzar said if, to all of his wise men, all of his advisors, if you don't tell me the dream, I'm going to kill you, okay? And, of course, they said, there is no king in, in the whole world that's ever asked that. Um, Daniel heard that, you know, his head would have been on the chopping block, and he asked Nebuchadnezzar, give me some time, and God revealed uh, some days later to Daniel what the dream had been, and then what the interpretation was. And it was the dream of um, the golden statue, well, the statue head of gold and chest of silver and it worked down 
to uh, iron and then iron and clay mixed as the feet. And then later it's interpreted that the great kingdoms are <clears throat> Babylon and then the Medes and the Persians and then the Greeks under Alexander the Great and then uh, came in the Romans. Um, and that Nebuchadnezzar was represented by the head of gold. Um, later on, still when Daniel was involved in advising, uh, we know that um, Nebuchadnezzar, spurred on by that dream and the interpretation of the dream, well, he builds a 90-foot-tall um, statue of himself in gold, okay? Summons everybody from 127 provinces, which reached from India to Ethiopia, northern Africa. And, you know, you know the story. Um, the three uh, sons of the Israelites, captive young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, didn't bow down. You're going to get thrown into the furnace. And a fourth being was in the furnace with them and delivered them. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son came to the throne, was absent a lot, fighting a lot of wars. And then, so Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belteshazzar, who was a ne'er-do-well, basically, um, he partied, wildly partied, the night that the Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon um, and came in under the, Euph the Euphrates River. They stopped it up enough where it ran under the wall that they marched under the wall uh, and into Babylon and his life, Daniel prophesied that's when the handwriting on the wall occurred. Daniel said, this night your soul will be required of you. Tonight you're going to die. Um, <clears throat> so the Medes and the Persians took over. Medes and the Persians, um, w w they, they kind of shared leadership. Daniel was alive through all of that, served the next king, uh, Darius. That's when the lion's den thing occurred. Um, and then Daniel prophesied that there would be a goat from the west um, with two horns that would uh, come against the Medes and the Persians and would run so fast that he, his feet didn't touch the ground. And he would slam into that kingdom of the Medes and the Persians and would um, conquer them. That was, well, it lasted until Alexander the Great died, and he died in, I think, 323 B.C., um, his, his reign was relatively short, and I think he was only, what was he, 33 or 34 or something? He was very young um, and wept after his final victories because he said, there, I, there's nothing left for me to conquer. Um, then there was a period of time, it didn't immediately go Roman. There were four, um, you know, I guess we junior kings or something that rose up and <coughs> ruled um, but finally, the Roman Empire then um, defeated the, <coughs> the weakened Greek Empire, and that was in 
uh, like 148 or 146 BC, Julius Caesar, um, and that cemented the Roman victory and the Roman Empire. And the Greek Empire was just absorbed by the Roman Empire. Now, I'm not going to get yet. We'll wait later. But the Romans had a, a different system, in, in a sense. They absorbed a lot. They didn't stamp it out. Um, they would change the same gods, but to different names. But, you know, they didn't. They left a lot of local culture intact. Um, you just obeyed the emperor and whatever, but they, they were not strident about changing everything, which really allowed for, um, um, what was it, Pax Romana, the, the peace, uh, long period of peace, um, relative peace. Anyway, <clears throat> so um, Greek religion, um, Greek and Roman, there's a lot um, of commonality because, again, the Romans absorbed a lot of that, kept the same concept gods, and changed their names. Just one example is we've all heard of Zeus, okay? Zeus was considered kind of the supreme god, only there were tons of them, and I'll read some here in a bit. Um, well, when the Romans took over, Zeus gradually became Jupiter. Um, that was the Roman god who somewhat filled the same role Zeus did for the Greeks, okay? So there was a tremendous amount of that that goes on, uh, even that we see in the New Testament. So um, I think what I'll do is just, um, I've got way too much stuff here to, to try to go through all of it, but... Um, the Greeks, of course, were polytheistic. They didn't, the Greeks, the Greeks and the Romans um, are, to me at least, a little easier to understand. The, the Indian, you know, Buddha, um, Buddhism, Hinduism, to me is, A, reading it is like scratching on a blackboard, um, Plus, it, I can't describe it. It's just like white noise trying to read it. They're, they've got all, they got, well, I remember, if you remember anything from last week, um, Hindus have approximately 33 million gods. Well, well you can't. That's crazy. Um, you can't even figure it out. So, <clears throat> um, Moving to somewhat to the West, um, it seemed it seems to make more sense. Now, Greek and Greece and democracy and Greek philosophy was part of the major foundation of Western civilization, as well as the Romans. Um, I read a book here not too long ago, it wasn't real long, and I got a little bit boring, but at any rate, it was on the founding fathers of America. And other than, they were well-versed in scripture, and other than frequent references to God and so forth, they made, they, they built a lot of our form of government on Greek and Roman government. Um, they quoted a lot 
um, a little bit more Roman philosophers than Greek. Um, Cicero um, was one of the major ones that they um, quoted and read on government when they were setting up our government. But Greek and Roman thinking, law, philosophy, religion, to a large degree, um, was the foundation of Western civilization. Now, Christianity came along, obviously, and um, overwhelmed all the others. It didn't uh, eliminate them, but it became, in, in a relatively short time, about three centuries or less, it became dominant enough that, and we need to, this is a little thing that probably nobody here cares about, but everybody, I was listening to some news thing the other day of somebody who should have known. They made the statement that when Constantine made Christianity the state religion, he did not make Christianity the state religion in 325 or whatever it was. Um, he withdrew the edict that banned Christianity, meaning Christianity was free then to practice their religion and, in a sense, to compete with the other religions in Rome. It gradually became the dominant religion as more and more from the lower classes and the governing classes became Christians. Um, so it really wasn't until the fall of Rome when, and I can get messed up here in some of the history. I don't know, I can't remember who it was. It wasn't Attila, I don't know, can't remember. But anyway, in the threes, 300s, there was no emperor left of Rome and he'd fled. And so if it was Attila or whoever it was that sacked Rome or came to Rome, the only guy left with any authority was the Pope. I think it was Leo the Third or somebody. But anyway, um, in fact, you can look that up if you want. I'm not sure I'm right. But at any rate, there wasn't anybody left that had any authority, any institutional um, structure except the church. And so the Catholic Church, not necessarily because they were grasping for power, but they were o the only institution left. And so they moved into that vacuum. And the Leo, or whoever he was, the Pope, basically is the one that, that um, surrendered the city, begging him not to sack it and burn it, um, which he partly did, the conqueror. Um, and so that was sort of a... I guess the end of the Roman Empire with a whimper. Um, you know, it wasn't a big grand surrender and people signed stuff and whatever. It just died. Um, rotted from the inside, moral corruption. Um, during the time, during the time really uh, at and even later that the New Testament and Paul was writing, um, the, ma the majority of the Roman Senate um, were all married, many of them had wives or whatever else, but all, a lot, most of them also had 12, 13, 14 year old boys they were married to. 
Um, of course, Nero, who lived during Paul's days, uh, Nero married his horse. He married, didn't he? He killed his sister and he married his, um, yeah, he, he, he was just, he married, he, he married his horse. Um, just scum. Now, the only good thing, not getting off the track too much, but you know what? Things have been worse. Things have been worse. I know that we think, and, and I understand it, I feel the same way. Man, alive, Lord, what's going on? This is the worst. It's, it's the worst I've seen, but it isn't the worst he's seen. Yeah. No. Um, God's, the one, God's the one that said he would put up with the stench of Sodom and Gomorrah if he could just find ten righteous people. Um, God has seen... He saw whatever it was that was so bad, he drowned everybody but eight. So he's seen worse. I was thinking today, um, I don't know what the percentage would be, but back when Elijah was just absolutely in the depths of depression, and he prayed and said, Lord, there's absolutely nobody left. I'm it. I'm the last one that it loves you and serves you. I'm it. And I've had it. And God told him, he says, well, um, there's still 7,000 in Israel that haven't <coughs> bowed the knee to Baal. Uh, the, the Baals were... Um, scummy gods most of them fertility gods temple prostitutes all that kind of stuff and god said well i still got seven thousand now we might think well that's not a bad number there were we don't know for sure but there were um well i don't know how many live in palestine today but there were lots of israelites lots of people so to have seven thousand would not be something to write home about Yet God said, I, I got that many. So I was thinking, I wonder what percentage in America, what percentage of the population out of 330 million are stalwart Christians, love God, serve Him, are found in houses of God on Sunday. Um, is it a larger percentage of our population than the 7,000 would have been of the multitudes of Israel. I don't know. But I think it would be more. Uh, I think it was darker then. Um, so God's, God's still around. Um, and He's not going to retire. Um, he doesn't spend, you know, um, six out of seven days on vacation like some leaders do. Um, you know what I mean? He's, he's at work. Um, so, anyway, um, I want to look at a little bit now specifically of the different gods of the Greeks and then I want to look in Scripture specifically in the 17th chapter of Acts. We'll get there in a second. Uh, where Paul is named as running into um, some fairly um, long-founded schools of philosophy uh, that were Greek. Um, let's see here. 
exactly what to try to focus on. Um, there's something called, um, there's something that is used both for the Romans and the Greeks, but it's pantheon. It's, it's, the, it's the group of gods that were uppermost um, in the pantheon. The Greeks had 12, okay? Um, Zeus was the overlord or the head, the commander-in-chief, the father of gods and men, okay? Um, then there's, now these, some of these gods I've heard of, some of them I haven't. Um, Hera was the guardian of marriage. Poseidon, you want to guess what Poseidon was god of? What? Who? I didn't hear. The sea. Poseidon. We have, we, the Navy uses that word, Poseidon, naming different vessels or whatever, classes of vessels. Um, let's see, Aphrodite. What? Okay. Um, and, by the way, Aphrodite, that, the goddess of love, there's the three words for love in the Greek, um, and it was primarily eros, though it was, you know, you could be used other ways, but primarily eros. Um, Artemis, this one I don't think you're going to get. You might. What? Yeah, Diana. yeah I, Artemis was Diana of the Ephesians. There was a, a you know, a, what? Um, same god. Goddess of wild nature. Athena. Beside her um, marital qualities, the goddess of wisdom and skills. Now this one I've never heard of. Demeter, the earth mother. Now that one is centered in Eugene, Oregon. Um, every time you go out there, I would, see, you know, you read these, see these bumper stickers, picture of the globe, and just the bumper sticker was, love your mother. So anyway. Um, now, um, Apollo. Everybody's heard of Apollo. Apollo was, um, I don't understand this completely, but Apollo kind of had uh, several spheres of life and power and the world over which he was God. And he had, in a sense, two different places in Greece and temples where he was worshipped. Um, one of them was Delphi. A lot of people have probably heard of Delphi. Um, we'll get to that in a minute. Another place called uh, Delos. Um, he was God of the north and the east. Okay, um, And he was also involved as some kind of a sun god. Um, and his, the, the rays of the sun could both grant health and could also bring plagues. Um, let's see. Also, during the classical times of, of Greek religion, which was classical Greek religion and culture was 500 to 323, so about 200 years, uh, which was the height um, of Greek thought and so forth. Um, he presided over culture in the widest sense, music, literature, higher thought. Another god, 
Hermes. Uh, it just says, is honored by a heap of stones placed by the roadside for veneration, meaning as you travel along, there'd be a pile of stones and you had to stop and worship. Um, because of that, he was along roads and all that. He, keep, he became the god of, of maps and guidance and travel. Okay, he was the, I can't remember what um, some of them are today. Anyway, um, he was also a messenger of the gods, an escort of the dead after, after they died, taking them into, um, you know, life after. Um, there's another one, um, Hephaestus, Hephaestus. Um, been traced to the Near Eastern uh, oil fields as a fire spirit. He's naturally linked with blacksmiths and technology. Ares seems to have come down from Thrace, which was um, a part of not only a god, but a piece of land. Whatever his origin was uh, to the Greeks, he was a war god and Aphrodite's lover. Okay. Finally, Hestia, the spirit of hearth and home, makes up the called the divine twelve of of the Greeks. Okay. Now, um, back of all that, it now are you really? You know, I know you're just kind of. <laughs> I see all of you sitting in the edge of your seats. Um, back of all of that there were basically two other really, really foundational gods that were sort of invisible, but they had greater power, in a sense, than all these other gods. And they were called, one was called just fate, and the other one was chance. Okay? Those were gods that were kind of invisibly pulling strings, and even the gods like Zeus or whoever didn't really have control over those because um, fate and chance happened to them also, okay? So if you're completely um, confused, um, nature was also a god. Um, <clears throat> here's just, let me read a couple sentences here in general of the Greek um, religions. In fact, the countryside was almost littered with shrines, statuettes, and offerings. <clears throat> Strabo, that's a historian way back, described the mouth of the river Alpheus thus, the whole tract is full of shrines of Artemis, Aphrodite, and the nymphs in flower groves due mainly to the abundance of water. There are numerous herms on the road. That was to the god Hermes. Um, let me just put it this way. There were this god Hermes of travel and the roadside and all that, um, there would be uh, lots of not only little shrines and niches in rocks to worship this Hermes, um, but there was a lot, there, there, there was, um, well, it was kind of pornographic, so we'll put it that way. Okay, the carvings and the gods representing this Hermes that guided there on their travels dotted the roadsides, okay? Um, now, um, let me skip 
some stuff here. I, I marked way too much to, to read. Um, there was a move, though, it's interesting, uh, but may, it may not be interesting, but um, within Greek religion that all of these gods and all of this, quote, superstition that got so deeply rooted, the more, quote, intellectuals, intellectual people, the thinkers, the philosophers, um, those that had the leisure to sit around, you know, and stare at something and think about it, um, began to, a gap appeared between that class in the culture and the common people, the farmers and so forth, um, the, the, you know, just the laborers. Um, I don't know so much about the Greek period, but in the Roman period, fully 50% is estimated of all the living people in the Roman Empire, especially Mediterranean Basin, were slaves. Um, so the slaves, they didn't have any leisure time. They were property, they had no rights, they had no nothing. They couldn't become a citizen unless they served in the military and did some great deed, heroic deed, Medal of Honor type stuff, they could get citizenship. Or if you saved up somehow enough money, you could buy citizenship. Of course, the main way to be a citizen was you were born of a Roman citizen. Um, you have the interesting encounter between the centurion that had authority over Paul. And um, Paul was a Roman citizen. You were not allowed to ever chain up, tie up a Roman citizen unless clearly he'd been charged, convicted, and so forth, and you couldn't punish him. Well, when the Jews tried to kill Paul and was rescued, he was rescued by the Roman centurion in Jerusalem. Um, he just assumed he wasn't a Roman citizen, so he ties him up and stretches him over either a barrel or a post or something in readying him for being scourged. And scourging, of course, many people died under scourging before they ever got to. That was like a pre sentence that they received and then they would be taken out if they were bad enough and crucified or whatever lots of people died just under scourging it was they had a, a whip of several strands and woven into the leather were pieces of rock glass metal that were very very sharp um and a couple, a couple of, of strikes, which they would strike and, and pull, would lay your ribs open on your back and around the sides. Um, it was horrible. So Paul was all roped up and ready for that. And I'm a little off subject, but I love this about Paul. He didn't say a word. He just let him tie him up. And... You know, they're ready to go, and I probably, they probably get the guy with the whip and the centurion standing there to make sure it's done, you know. And Paul asks him, I think, kind of, you know, just a question. Um, he says, uh, is it lawful to tie up a Roman citizen? Well, it wasn't. So he'd already gone over, he'd already crossed the line, this centurion. 
Is it a lawful disciple? He said, what? <laughs> he said, are you a Roman citizen? And before Paul could answer, the centurion said, with a huge sum of money, I purchased my citizenship. And I don't, I know you can't see it in the Bible, but I know that there, there was a bit of <laughs> uh, sanctified haughty, uh, haughtiness. Paul said, I was freeborn. I didn't have to buy it. I'm a real Roman citizen. It says at that word, the people that were just ready disappeared um, because they, they, could, they could be in serious uh, execution type trouble for doing that to a Roman citizen. Okay, I got off the subject, but anyway. Um, <clears throat> there, there began though to be a revolt against all the superstition. There's an entire paragraph here I was thinking about reading, but I'm not gonna do it. Of the gods within Greek, and then of course it transferred to Roman. But there were something, okay, in, in childbirth alone, there was, a, there was a special God, named God, um, that um, helped in the, it was the God of the development of the fetus. But they even used the word fetus, and that fetus had a God that overlooked it. That's interesting. Even though they allowed for what, the, what was called exposure, um, ch children were, especially children of slaves, but even children of Roman citizens, if the father wanted to, they could expose them. they just put them out in the woods or someplace, and hypothermia, um, um, wild animals, whatever, they were, eliminated them, okay? Um, but at any rate, there was a God then for the development of the fetus. There was a God for the months up leading up to birth. Um, there was a God whose special job was to help in the actual delivery, the God over the delivery. There was another God that stepped in then and helped the baby to make its first cry. Then there was a God who helped it feed. There was a God who came along later and helped it learn to walk. I mean, there were just, and, and um, there was such a level of superstition that there is an old and ancient Greek philosopher making fun of it who wrote about the depth of superstition that people, clear back, you think about some of these things. Um, where did they come from? They had, they had a certain curse that would come on, come on you if a cat ran across your path. Well, we've still got the, you know, if a black cat goes, you know, whatever. And just don't go under a ladder and all kinds of nutty stuff. Um, also, they had a god, clear back there in B.C. of the Greeks, who was the god of some kind of, I don't really understand it, but of sneezing but some of that ancient <laughs> nutdom works its way all the way until today and I hope I don't make anybody mad but everybody says you know if you sneeze bless you 
you know. Well, I think that's among the dumbest things I've ever heard in my entire life. I'm around it once in a while, but I think, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Um, but there's all kinds of stuff from way back there that survived. A lot of times it, you know, it changed a bit and new gods were added and whatever. Um, so it's interesting how much stuff survived to get here. Now, the superstition, though, drove the, quote, thinkers, who likely thought highly of themselves, the Greek schools of philosophy. And they began to move away from what they called religious superstition to philosophy and what's called rationalism. Now, rationalism simply means it's a faith in quite a strong faith in the ability of humankind to solve problems intellectually, to govern themselves, to control things, and it's really a deification of self. I think it's interesting, um, and they called that science. Now, science has gotten a different definition up into the English philosophers, John Locke and some of those people, um, the scientific method and so forth. That's changed, but in this day, science, um, philosophy were essentially the same. It was inquiry. Um, you were, there was a group of philosophers called the skeptics, and they, they doubted um, all of this superstition. And so they they began to delve into more abstract stuff rather than rocks and trees being gods and the sky and mountains of God and the mountains were where all the gods sat. Um, they began to push back against all that and come up with all of the early Greek philosophy. Okay, Now, it's amazing. A lot of the Greek philosophy, we have to remember this, during this whole time, there's still a God who talked to people. He bothered consciences back then. And you have in the days of the apostles, early in the church, probably as early as, say, 45 or 50 A.D., you have the apostles gathered in the great council that they held, which is recorded in Acts 15, trying to figure out what rules do we hold on the Gentiles that we Jews, do we make them not eat bacon too? Um, the solution was no, leave them alone, because um, all this stuff is done away with. It didn't take care of it right then. However, um, <coughs> James... The, the presiding elder of this meeting in Acts 15, made the statement. He said, Moses has in every city, and he was talking about not, Jew, not Jerusalem or Palestine. He was talking about the whole Mediterranean basin because it, they were dealing with Christians in Antioch and Christians in Rome and other places um, that were being pestered about you got to be you've got to adopt all this Jewish stuff. And so James said, Moses has in every city those who read his law. 
So Judaism, the Old Testament at least, was all throughout the Mediterranean basin, the Greeks, the Romans. So they knew more or had access to more gospel light, God's truth light, than we might think. Um, so it's interesting that the Greek philosophers began to come up with some sort of Christian ideals. Now they weren't Christian themselves, nor were these ideas correct in that they represented the gospel. But at least there were elements of truth in it. Um, later, some of the later philosophers, um, Plato, Aristotle was his pupil. Um, they all believed in creation. It was the gods and everything else, but they all believed in creation. None of them ever came up with the idea of evolution. I mean, you, you have to be dumber than people in 400 B.C. to invent that. They all, but Aristotle and the thinkers in Greek and Greece recognized you, got, you have to have a creator who's not an uncreated creator. Or, as Aristotle called it, an unmoved mover. A God who created, and we believe this is a creation, and there's order to the universe, can't have been created himself. That's true. It's a good thought. It indicates the dim kind of light that Paul talks about in Romans 1. It says that everyone has, um, from just creation, knowledge of God and his power and his nature. So you begin to see some glimmers here of light. Um, and in most cases, they defined the good as um, justice or their definition, but righteousness, fairness, uh, tranquility, um, Kindness, um, citizenship, where you include people and you work together and you build a society and so forth. So there were, of course, they lacked any grace from God because to accomplish that. But those at least they recognized were worthy goals. Okay, now, um, so rationalism, which then got out of control in pride and arrogance. Remember where Paul writes to Timothy, and he's in Ephesus, which was a great center of culture. And he tells him, do not be persuaded or intimidated, he said, by philosophy and science so-called, meaning it's not really science. And he wasn't talking about, when he said science, he was using the word, the meaning of science that they used then, a way of thinking and so forth. He wasn't talking about Bunsen burners, you know what I mean, and, and um, a class where you're in the lab and boiling, you know, 
and petri dishes. This isn't what he means by science. It's a philosophy, basically. And he's saying, don't be moved away from the simplicity of the gospel by philosophy, rationalism, science, falsely called science, because it really isn't. It's false, okay? Now, um, two, two Greeks will, I think, get out of here with maybe something. Um, if you look at Acts, um, chapter 17. Now, 17 is where Paul goes to Athens. Now, Athens, of course, was the mecca of philosophy in, in the Greeks. Um, and Athens was um, the first real experiment in democracy. Um, Athens would be close to what we would call a pure democracy, which we all know, um, even though um, our democracy has, of course, been um, destroyed. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, um, we don't have a democracy. We have a republic. Um, in Greece, it was a true, pure democracy, meaning every citizen could voice their opinion on laws, policies, whatever. Now, true democracy, if, and we use the term, um, but a true democracy, I think, is basically, uh, in the end, it's unworkable. You simply can't have every single person in, in Gillette vote on everything that comes before the city council. You, you can't do that. It just won't work. So you have to have people selected to represent you, and, and they're all representatives represent us so wonderfully. Um, anyway, You know, can I get a little snarky for a second? Um, it's really interesting to me that, um, um, you know, Chuck Schumer um, made the statement today that he was very disappointed in Menendez, Senator Menendez, from, uh, because he fell far below the standards of the Senate. What a bunch. And they got standards, including Fetterman. <laughs> I mean, really, what a joke to talk about. We have standards. Yeah, how much can you filch? Um, you know what I mean? How crooked can you get? I guess that's the standard. Anyway, so now I get back to... <laughs> in 17 of Acts, um, verse uh, 16... Paul was waiting for Timothy and some others to come down from Thessalonica, down the eastern coast of Greece, to Athens, where Paul had gone ahead of time. Um, and, well, in fact, let me just do one thing here. Um, let's go to, um, uh, let's see here, because I didn't look this up uh, earlier. <clears throat> Well, 
Well, where is it um, that Well, it's in the latter part of 17. Anyway, where Paul said that there were just many, many gods in Athens. I didn't think I was going to apply uh, mention this. Um, where is it? 22. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus. The Areopagus was the courthouse. I mean, there's a place up on the mount where they stood. Um, I perceive that in all things you were very religious. Um, other versions say superstitious, um, which is better. You know, um, but I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship. I found, I even found an altar to, with this inscription, to the unknown God. Um, anyway, he talked about how it was filled with idols, and it was. There were idols everywhere. Um, up in 16, Paul waited for them, the people coming to him from Thessalonica. While he waited at Athens, his spirit was provoked. Yeah, this is it. The spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Now, um, let me say this real quick. There's a little bit of background here. It was against the law, and you could be educated, or you could educated, you could be executed if you brought a, if you brought another false god unknown to them. They were happy to have a thousand gods, but don't you bring in a brand new one we don't know about. That's why Paul, seeing all those different gods, and he seized on the altar to the unknown god. That was his in. Because he could say, that's the God that you have an altar to that I want to talk to you about. So it's not a brand new God that I'm introducing that'll get me in trouble with law. It's the unknown God that you guys recognize you don't know. I'm here to tell you about him. So <laughs> Paul was a good psychologist. Um, anyway, um, but notice these two, it says Epicurean and Stoic. Now, real quick, let's take both of these. What do you know? Have you ever heard of um, these two philosophies? Anybody heard of the Epicurean philosophy or the guy Epicurus? Anybody? I know you have. You just don't know it. Uh, sometimes it will be, you'll even see it associated with restaurants or great feasts. It was an, you know, Epicurean event, okay? It comes from an Epicureanism, Epicureanism is often misused. It's often associated with what's called hedonism. And hedonism is just the pursuit of pleasure. The greatest good is pleasure, okay? Well, there are some there are, there are, even today, there are events called Epicurean resorts or places called Epicurean resorts. Now, they are supposedly, and I, you know, I, in, in reading some of the stuff around about them and Epicurean use of that word today, 
Um, you know, it's just a it's just a drunken mess. Okay, but supposedly they they learn a lot. They read books and they discuss things and they debate and they they have the pleasure of you know deep intellectual um, discussions and learning um, while you're you know hanging out of the chaise lounge drunk. Um, it's not it's a lie. Okay, it's nothing but a bacchanalia mess. But um, that's not true Epicurean philosophy. The, the, um, an Epicurean and what he taught was, the, um, was happiness or tranquility, pleasure, but not in the way we might often think. Um, it was primarily, um, and I wrote some notes here, um, quickly if I can. Um, yeah, there's three, three things that you have to do as an Epicurean to achieve pleasure or happiness. Okay? One, um, tranquility. Two, freedom from fear. And then three, absence of bodily pain. Now, that doesn't sound like the word Epicurean is used today. But Epicurus himself ate nothing but bread and water because he didn't want to get indigestion. And avoidance of pain is one of the three pillars of being an Epicurean. So if you got heartburn, you don't have pleasure. So the idea that you're just, you know, you're, you're just guzzling and, you know, you're eating shrimp and lobster and whatever else um, until you're throwing up, <clears throat> that's not Epicurean, even though today it seems to have that connotation, okay? Um, the Stoics, <clears throat> you want to guess, does anybody want to guess, even from the name, what Stoicism, yeah. And, and enduring them. Yeah, we'll say that so-and-so stoically went to the gallows <laughs> or whatever. It's, it's a complete abandonment to the fates, meaning if life's bad, put up with it. It's the way it is. It's not going to change. Don't kick against it. Don't gripe. Learn, uh, learn patience, endurance, um, hardiness of going through difficult times. Um, now, it became an element of pride, you know, but it was supposed to be acquiescence to the, the fates, to nature, to the gods. Um, and you endure it, and you spend your time in contemplation and thinking, um, and, and in, enduring. Um, <clears throat> solid is one of the words, or steadfast is another similar word. Uh, but stoic is a word that survives in our language today, meaning somebody that just keeps going and keeps a level head and doesn't fall to pieces and doesn't have a meltdown. They just, 
eye on the target, okay? Now, um, I'm, I don't think I'll get started on, because there's too much to it, um, but two other philosophers, more than that, but at least two main ones, Plato and Aristotle, um, had influence in scripture, though their names may not mention, aren't mentioned in the New Testament, but they had some heavy influence, not only a bit of influence that is hinted at in the New Testament, but in the second century, the third century of the early church, um, Greek philosophy really made inroads into the church and could erect it. Now, God kept it, of course, but there were heresies associated with it. And it was uh, Greek philosophy. Here's what some Christian thinkers did, and some great theologians, uh, early church theologians, felt that a way to present Christianity would be, which was foreign, teach it, preach it, explain it, write about it in the structure of Greek philosophy. Okay, Zeus is really not Zeus, it's God the Father. Um, the children he had, well, they, so since you have the concept that you can have a God, a supreme God who has children, Jesus is the son of the Father, okay? Um, they tried to wed something that was unfamiliar with something that was familiar but the problem is always um, they, there's there's bleed over okay and Greek philosophy ended up influencing Christian thinking so that some heresies came up the the I'll just mention this um, and we'll explain it more fully um, but dualism and its child, um, Gnosticism, were early, early um, heresies within Christianity that are mentioned, not specifically by name, but they're mentioned in the New Testament. Okay? Um, Paul's certainly ref referring to it when he talks about you know, vain philosophy and all that. Uh, but John... John is one of the clearest, and not the only one. But in the book, the Gospel of John, first chapter, in the beginning was <clears throat> the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Then down in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Okay? That was a clear shot at the... Across uh, the bow of the uh, doctrine, if you want to call the heresy of Gnosticism. Gnosticism starts with a G, G N O, whatever. Okay, um, Gnosticism came, comes from the word to know, and they believed that there was a superior, higher, um, almost secret knowledge that was salvation, and only a few could attain to that. The little people, you know, didn't get it um, and couldn't probably. Um, but it was, 
it was part, it is wed also with um, this idea of dualism, which was the root issue. Then you go to 1 John chapter 1. He says, speaking about the Son of God, and so forth, that he said, which we have seen, which we've heard, which we've touched. Well, why did he have to say that? Why did he mention specifically in the gospel, this Jesus became flesh? Well, dualism is an ancient Greek philosophical notion that spirit is good, matter is evil. We're made of matter. Earth, dirt is, is the source of evil. Now, so, lo, so sin is located in the physical body. Okay? Um, yeah, I'll save this for next week. Um, but they believed that pure spirit was good, pure, pure good. Matter was evil. You cannot join the two together. So it's impossible that there was a true incarnation. You can't have an incarnation. God could never clothe himself with human flesh because human flesh is evil. Spirit has nothing to do with evil. So, what do you do then with, what do you do with Jesus? What do you do with the crucifixion? What do you do with the resurrection? Well, it was all a phantom. Um, it wasn't real. It, just, it was an appearance, but it wasn't real. So we supposedly, that's another thing. Jesus knew what was in the future. But what did he do after he rose from the dead? Hey, put your finger in the nail prints. Eight in front of them. I am in a human body. Okay? So that spawned then, and I'll get into it better next week. But that spawned some real inroads of heresy in the early church that had to be dealt with um, and condemned and so forth. But some of that, some of that is to this day, some of that is still alive, um, surprisingly, in the Christian church. Um, and it's, it's, in, it's throughout. It's in, it's in evangelical Protestantism. It is in Catholicism. Why do you have to have? Um, why do you have to have celibate priests? Because those an act the act of marriage is evil, and if you're going to f- represent the people to God and you're going to serve communion and all that, you got to be celibate. Never mind the fact that the first pope, supposedly Peter, was married. But, hey, let's don't let the scripture mess us up any. But, not dinging the Catholics. There's more evangelical conservative, conservative Protestants that will tell you, well, we can't be holy. We're human. Where'd that come from? It came straight from Greek philosophical dualism. As long as we're in this body, we can't be pure. That's dualism. Been around for 2,000, well, more than that. 
So it's amazing how some of this might seem, you know, dear Lord, when's he going to quit tonight so we can get out of here stuff. But it's relevant. Some of those old ideas and heresies are still alive and they're still perpetrated, okay? Now, let's quit. Officially, though, I am one minute early, so you can't um, complain too much. Father in heaven, it's important that we know truth from error and are able to recognize error and it's important that we see the scripture as it was written and as it's meant and um, not in any way adulterated. So I pray that you would help us see those things that we need to know for certain. Keep us as we go, I pray, for our safety. Thank you for everybody here. And I'm grateful, Lord, for our congregation. We, have, we thank you for the people that you've uh, brought together here, that we can love one another, support one another, pray for each other, and get to heaven with each other. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.